I, I kind of wasted my time at school, but I wasted my time very, very fruitfully. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara. And me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. All right. Are you, are you going to be the knocker-off of tall hats forever, or you just switch it up when you feel like it? It's hard to relinquish that one. It's honestly. a good one. It's yeah. good. I, uh, so today we're going to do, um, uh, well, some of uh, Friedrich Schiller's The Aesthetic Letters, and or Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Man, and our art is going to be the 2009 short story The Use of Poetry by Ian McEwan. Um, but before that, Jake, there's something that I have been meaning to tell you for a long time. I'm always. I wish you were choked in a cesspool, you paltry coward. With defenseless nuns, you're a mighty man. But at the sight of a pair of fists, a confirmed sneak. Now show your courage or you shall be sewn up alive in an ass's hide and baited to death with dogs. There's only so many times you can tell that to me, Phil. Right? <laughs> Starts to lose its impact after a while. Uh, that's from uh, Friedrich Schiller's play. Uh, the Robbers. Yeah, The Robbers, um, by the way, in case we don't get back to this, is one of the greatest things I ever read at the age when I read it completely. <laughs> seriously, I, I'm not... Um, it, I highly recommend it. It is a perfect play to read when you're like 19. And yeah, there, there's a lot of exc- exclamation points in that play. There are, but it's also um, really genuinely full of dark romantic passion and yeah. and fury. Yeah. Fury, uh for sure. Um okay, so Schiller uh was and actually I'm gonna quote from Roger Kimball. Uh Jake sent me a good article uh, where he talks about Schiller. Schiller was a strange hybrid, half poet, half philosopher, total idealist, a sort of Germanic Shelley with less money and more fastidious morals. Um so uh Interesting guy. Uh, he, born 1759, died 1805. So around during a pretty kind of revolutionary time in uh, politics, in philosophy, yeah. uh, and art. Uh, like a lot of people, uh, you know, he read Kant, Rousseau, Goethe. He cheered the French Revolution, and then as he watched the terror unfold, was horrified by it. Yeah, I think he wrote the letters during. Or immediately after the terror. Yeah, there were there were aspects of it, and particularly his critique of reason, um, uh, which is always there in, in in his plays. I mean, in the robbers, uh, the evil character um, is Carl. No, Carl's a good one. And, I can't remember. It's been forever. But um, uh, the evil character is the one who's just sort of strictly materialist mm. and rational. Uh, uh, so he he started off as a playwright, and actually he wrote the, the, the Robbers while he was still in school, and then he was a regimental doctor, and I kind of love this story. He he hated the job, and the first night, the, the premiere of The Robbers, he snuck away from his regiment to watch it, and then as a result of that was imprisoned for 14 days. His sponsor, uh, who's a duke who, you know, back during the day, were like aristocrats would like pluck out promising young you know, kids. Ficta was the same, and like mm. you know, give them an edu- education. Uh, ordered that he doesn't that he that he not uh, you know write anymore. Uh, didn't didn't take. Yeah, he was a mill blogger before his. He time, was a mill blogger, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, exactly. his regimental commander actually <laughs> after the robbers was published told him that he wasn't allowed to publish anything else. <laughs> right, uh, right. We know the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, early Matt Gallagher. Um, yeah, so uh, plays, poetry, Ode to Joy, uh, you know, that uh, his poem was Ode to Joy was, was later used by Beethoven for the final movement of his Ninth Symphony. Uh, one, one, one nice thing that I found on Wikipedia, uh, so his, his patron, the Duke of Württemberg, right, this is from Wikipedia, uh, 
Duke of Württemberg also displayed humanist tendencies. For example, in 1744, he ordered that the corpse of Joseph Oppenheimer, the executed Jewish financial advisor of his father, whose decaying corpse had been suspended in an iron cage by Stuttgart's Prague gallows for six years, be taken down and given a decent burial. Uh. So, you know, the, the bar for being a humanist uh, in 1744 was pretty low. Um, but... Uh, yeah, Schiller's. Uh, so you've read the robber. I mean, yeah. What what was it about the robbers that appealed to you? You said at nineteen, something like that. Harry, actually, my brother Harry had read the robbers and uh, told me you've got to read this. And what appealed to me about it, I guess, was um, I liked, for one thing, I liked the way in which there was this sort of overtly. Um, kind of gothic fairy tale quality to it, yeah. right? Like they start off in the forest. They're this band of robbers, but there's something about the environment that's kind of darkly enchanted. You know, it's and, – and this is a kind of – you know, it's a German romantic motif, but it's, it's not a, a story of ideas in which the ideas are soberly argued and carefully um, limbed. And a priest comes in and Franz uh, goes, um, I only believe in reason because I'm enlightened and God doesn't really exist. And the priest goes, yes, he does exist. And Franz, no, he doesn't. Shove off, will you? It's in many ways animated by these ideas and these intellectual passions, but it takes place in a, you know, a dark enchanted forest. Right, right. And it's, it's just like, Aggressive critique against, I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, Fie-fie upon this weak, effeminate age, fit for nothing but to ponder over the deeds of former times. And he's attacking the corruption of former days, and he's <laughs> yeah. holding up, you know... When um, you read that, it makes me wonder how <laughs> it would register to me now. It's, it's a play with a lot of exclamation points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, very much, a, you know... Uh, about liberty and, and yeah, liberty and, 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 and so the, it actually made him really popular with French revolutionaries and he was made an honorary citizen of the French Republic in 1792. And heroic uh, individualism, right? It's a... Uh, yeah, though, though... Defiant... Um, though that, that, that like leads the main character to do. It's an interest it's an interesting play. It's, it's yeah, I yeah. it's highly not individualism in the modern yeah, sense, yeah. but a a a, uh, a hero's conscience in right. a, a hero's journey. But that was all I had read of his, I should say, prior yeah. to this. So I only knew him from the robbers. So later in life, he was sort of bummed out by the French Revolution and also um became very ill. Uh and he ended up dying young, but uh unable to and it kind of had a creative block and so he started writing philosophical works. Um and uh Kimball actually argues that uh the aesthetic letters were influential to Hegel, to Nietzsche, Karl Marx, George Lukács, uh, Marcuse. Um, uh, so, uh, interesting. They're, they're broad-ranging. We're only just really narrowing in on really two of them, but specifically on his, his uh, discussion of art. One of the things that... that the two are 14 and 15. Yeah. It's just in case people want to read them. And the, the two that are really about the idea of play. Yeah. And so to, to, to set him up, <laughs> he, you know, he's wondering basically what has gone wrong. Uh, and he decides that this sort of strictly rational urge within the, the French Revolution has led to the terror. And that we need to increase not just man's capacity for reason, but also for feeling, mm. right? And that's the most urgent need. And he thinks that, uh, you know, he's deeply engaged with Kant, but he thinks that Kant is too rigorous, too duty-bound. He, he has this sort of famous quip about how, you know, uh, you know, Kant's valuing of duty and his rigorism. He says, gladly I serve my friends, but alas, I do it with pleasure. Hence, I'm plagued with doubt that I'm not a virtuous person. To this, the answer is given. Surely your only resource is to try to despise your friends entirely and then with aversion do what your duty enjoins, mm. right? Um, uh, so, uh, he thinks ultimately that if we're going to develop sentiment and not just rely on this sort of strictly rationalistic, mm -hmm. rigorous duty, 
uh, you're going to need something to actually cultivate that sense in people. And he thinks that the tool is art. Um, that said, he's also aware that art has not necessarily always, um, you know, people who like fine art have not always uh, been virtuous. Uh, and so he is trying in a kind of Kantian sense to like, all right, let's go back to sort of like human nature and how we perceive the world. And he divides uh, human nature up into two different um, parts, the self and its determining attributes, right? And so in other words, it's like uh, my sense of myself as an I, an identity preserved through time, uh, and then also uh, the, the material factors that compose me at any mm -hmm. given moment, right? So it's kind of man as an autonomous being. Uh, was it you always, you, you've been saying this phrase a lot in our podcast, uh, a sovereign individual? Yes. Yes, man, yeah. Uh, and, um, and then versus man as a physical object in a causally determined universe, right? Right. And he says because of these kind of two uh, different aspects of human nature, we have two different kind of corresponding drives. And he calls these a form drive and a sense drive, yeah, right? The two impulsions. Right. And that's, it's trying to figure out what these drives are doing. Um, that's, you know, that's when we get to the letters that we're going to discuss. Yeah. And these two drives he defines um, also in terms of their relationship to time. Right. Right. And one is trying to stand outside of time and establish these uh, timeless categorical absolutes yeah. and the other is trying to be a, a pure temporal experience of time and uh, rather than being a, a categorical absolute to be a, uh, a, a to give itself over totally to the presence of the moment right. in a sort of chaotic gesture of spontaneity yeah um, and the uh, uh, he he basically says that um, you know the one right that sort of you know physical being the sense drive um, is all about life right like life in its in its uh, in its richness uh, of mm. sensation um, uh, and then the 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 other one but at the same time there's actually no sort of uh, there's no freedom in that, right? Hmm. Because you're just kind of a physical object receiving sensory inputs, um, as, as I said, within the sort of, you know, deterministic universe. And then the other one, there's actually no freedom either, right? Because the form drive is abstract. It's, it's the kind of uh, 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 the, the, the desire uh, or, or you know, the thing that it, um, it pushes for is you know, kind of consistent identity, right? Yeah. Over time and outside of time, actually. Right. Um, outside of time. Mm -hmm. There's a great two-line uh, passage in letter 14, or a great, yep. great two lines in letter 14 that I think sums this up, which is, the sensuous instinct wishes to be determined. It wishes to receive an object. The formal instinct wishes to determine itself. It wishes to produce an object. Therefore, the instinct of play will endeavor to receive as it would itself have produced and to produce as it aspires to receive. So the last part mm -hmm. where he gets to play is how he synthesizes all this, but he breaks it down initially into these two impulses, the sensuous and the formal, and the sensuous wants to be acted upon by the world, which right. is to say acted upon by the world as carried through time, you know, through yep. the medium of time. And the formal instinct wants to stand outside of time and to make the world its object and right. to determine the world. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, how do you kind of reconcile these, right? And, and what he comes to is this sort of the play instinct, right? And which is a little bit kind of hard to pin down, but it's basically when you are uh, aware of and holding both you know, both drives together, right? And mm. and not being kind of reduced to the, you know, material logic of the one or the kind of formal abstract logic of the other, right? Mm. Um, and in which you can sort of, uh, 
I guess, straddle both both states. And that, he thinks, is, is essential, right? So the two impulsions subdue the mind, the former to the laws of nature, the latter to the laws of reason, right? And, you know, reason is no more free than, than physical interaction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you only get the, you get the same result from a syllogism every time. Uh, and so the, it results from this that the instinct of play, which unites the double action of the two other instincts, will content the mind at once morally and physically. Hence, as it suppresses all that is contingent, it will also suppress all coercion and will set man free physically and morally, right? Um, and so I, that's not just where he um, kind of locates how you reconcile these two, you know, sort of seemingly opposed aspects of man and drives that come out of our nature, but also where he finds autonomy, right? Yeah, because uh, because if you are given over entirely to either one of these two impulsions, um, you're you're lacking something essential. So the problem is that you have these two fundamental characteristics in people, one of which wants to determine to create objects, the other one wants to be acted upon, and that they appear to be mutually exclusive. They, they appear to be uh, in conflict because if you're outside of time, you can't be acted upon right. by time, right? It's a sort of simple contradiction. And the philosophies that come before him or the philosophies let's say, that come immediately before him um, appear to be either going all the way in one direction or or all the way in the other direction. Most of them are going all the way towards a kind of pure reason. That's really more what he's reacting against is this Kantian notion of pure reason in the categorical imperative. And the problem with that is that it's stifling this fundamental aspect of human nature and denying both part of the human being and denying the higher aspirations of the human being, which needs to um, give fulfillment to both of these impulsions to really realize itself, right? So, so that's the problem. The problem is these two things seem to be in conflict. Either you can be the painter or you can be the, the painting, yeah. but you can't be both. Um, and he's saying that there is a way to reconcile these two things, and that only by reconciling these two things do we achieve uh, our highest nature. And the way to reconcile them is play, and you talked before about art, and definitely, you know, art is kind of the the best example of play, but he means a broader, yeah. it's a broader aesthetic category. Yeah. And aesthetics that's broader than art as a, a representational... Um, a representational uh, act. You know, it's a, something more like um, a kind of an attitude towards the world, right. a sensibility. Do, do, do you know uh, Henry Bergson's thing a bit on humor? I know Bergson. I don't know the thing on humor. So he, some of this reminded me of that. Bergson's the, uh, the universe is a machine for making gods? Uh, or am I this is, the thing on humor is the only thing I know about him. Okay. I know he did work on time. Gotcha. Um, but uh, he's this, this, an interesting discussion of humor. Uh, but one, one thing that he talks about within humor is how humor can kind of sometimes re- reveal our materiality or our mechanical nature, right? And that, um, and that we find that funny. Um, uh, and he read, when materiality succeeds in fixing the movement of the soul and hindering its grace, it obtains a comic effect, hmm. right? Um, which is why, like, a, like a fart is funny or so, you know, but mm. at, at like the most crude level that sort of, you know, we have this sort of sense of ourselves, um, as you know, that, that kind of corresponds to our, our form drive, which gives us dignity, uh, and, and, right. you know, all these high aspirations. And then, you know, we are continually faced with things that just sort of in, intrude upon that or, or, or seem to make a mockery of it. And that's necessarily Bergson, but I think, you know, humor is one way of, of, of taking taking that conflict in a playful manner and turning right. it into something. And yeah. yet, a fart is always funny. <laughs> so there is a categorical <laughs> in the fart. I mean, Mel Brooks understood this, right. right? So the fart is both this impulsive, subversive gesture that takes the kind of mechanistic, ego-driven view of man and farts in the face of it. 
And yet it constitutes its own infinitive. <laughs> because when is a fart not funny? It, it's, it's its own Kantian category. Yeah. <laughs> but I was going to say, I mean, in the sense of humor, it's like um, there are rules right. to humor in the same way that there are, or there are replicable rules. Right. right. There are predictable ways to be funny. Um, the laugh is this purely spontaneous thing, um, but the there are, you know, so e- even humor is uh, sort of balanced here between these two impulsions. Right. So, and when you have, so that is kind of merging these and you get humor, but he thinks more broadly, when you have these two things operating in harmony, the kind of mind perceiving that has this sort of field of play that's open to them, and that and seeing it is is when you come into contact with the beautiful, right? Yes. And so he says the object of the play instinct, right? Because you have the form instinct and and the um, sensuous instinct that have their own object. The object of the play instinct, represented in a general statement, he writes, may therefore bear the name of living form, a term that serves to describe all aesthetic qualities of phenomena and what people style in the widest sense beauty. And so he says, a marble block, though it is and remains lifeless, can nevertheless become living form by the architect and sculptor. A man, though he lives and has form, is far from being a living form on that account. For this to be the case, it is necessary that his form should be life and that his life should be a form. Yeah, it reminded me uh, of the way that Camus ends The Rebel, Mm -hmm. which is with a discussion of beauty and specifically of sculpture as the highest form of art. And, you know, part of what the rebel is about is about the attempt uh, throughout history by um, rebels to, to define the rule of life in a way that both exalts life without trampling it and, and turning that exaltation or that rule of life into a license for murder. Um, and he says... The greatest and most ambitious of all the arts, sculpture, is bent on capturing in three dimensions the fugitive figure of man and on restoring the unity of great style to the general disorder of gestures. Sculpture does not reject imbalance, of which indeed it has need, but resemblance is not its first aim. What it is looking for in its periods of greatness is the gesture the expression, or the empty stare, which will sum up all the gestures and all the stares in the world. Hmm. And, you know, and, and what Camus comes back to, and the rebel also, is this idea, basically, that we need to return to the Greek ideas, yeah. uh, classical Greek ideas of uh, aesthetics. Which, well, Schiller, Schiller idolizes them right. as well. And, and it's, they're coming from similar places as well. And, you know, yeah. Camus more than a century later, is also reacting to the terror, but he's reacting to the, the revolutionary terror, but he's also reacting to the 20th century totalitarian revolutionary terrors. But the the impulses, the, the motivations behind Schiller's aesthetic letters and Camus writing in The Rebel are very similar, yeah. and they both end up at the Greeks and at aesthetics, in a sense, you know. The, you know, I think... And I think one of the reasons I, I, I like this, right, is because I think, you know, and, and, and I, I'm not really particularly good at discussing sculpture, right? Um, but when I think of literature and literature that I like, you know, uh, it's got to have a certain kind of anarchic yeah. strangeness, yeah. right, to it for... and. Um, uh, there's a great bit that I found in, in Gore Vidal is talking about Norman Mailer, hmm. right? He wrote this essay for about Norman Mailer like I mean, decades and decades ago. And, uh, and he writes, uh, one of the few sad results of the collapse of the Judeo-Christian ethical and religious systems has been the displacement of those who are absolutists by temperament and would in earlier times have been rabbis, priests, systematic philosophers. As the old establishment of the West crumbles, the absolutists have turned to literature and the arts. And one by one, the arts in the 20th century have become hieratic. Serious literature has become religion. 
as Matthew Arnold foresaw. Those who would once have been fulfilled in Talmudic debates or suffered finally between the pull of Rome and the Church of England have turned to the writing of novels and worse, to the criticism of novels. Works, and then he, you know, he's, he's saying why this isn't, you know, absolutism is a bad mode for a writer. And he says, works of fiction at best create not arguments, but worlds. And a world, by definition, is an attitude towards a complex of experience, not a single argument or theme syllogistically proposed. Um, and we were, you know, I, I sort of <clears throat> disagree with him placing all uh, religious <clears throat> folks in the uh, absolutist <laughs> camp. And we... <laughs> Yeah, well, Vidal was known to have yeah. uh, certain, but, certain problems with Talmudic yeah. scholars. <laughs> yeah, you know? but um, that is, you know, that is what I'm looking for—a little bit of spirit of play, right? Yeah. Like somebody who, yeah, it's life. It's another right. word for life. It's uh, if a uh, a book appears too uh, too perfect, too uh, predictable, too uh, mechanistic, is a sort of very um, dry way of putting it, but if it if it does that, if there's not something unpredictable, something strange, then you feel like you're reading an argument mm-hmm. rather than entering uh, a life. And um, if it feels like it's trying to present an unassailable worldview, right? Yeah. Even like I, there's a- or even just just to modify that, it's not just the worldview though. Even if it's trying to present too perfectly realized a character, a character who fits too much into themselves, who can be, you know, kind of folded and unfolded like a perfect origami shape, there needs to be something that doesn't fit in the character, that's self-contradictory, that defies not only your expectations as a reader, but probably the writer's own expectations to feel like this hasn't been... um, worked out mathematically first. You know, right. it's sort of similar to the idea of the uncanny valley that uh, you'll sense on a visceral level, you'll you'll react to a humanoid robot because you are yeah. you're designed to recognize life. Because the, the, the writer is smoothing down the, the, the reality that they're observing. You know, Flannery O'Connor said um, that it wasn't a writer's mind that there was their greatest tool, but their eye. Mm. Right, and um, I think you, you ever read the novel um, "Small Worlds" by David Lodge? No. There's a there's a bit in there where there's like this very prestigious kind of conference, um, uh, like uh, for literary criticism, mm. and uh, this scholar asks a question like this that that um, that silences everybody. Um, he says, "What uh, follows if everyone agrees with you?" Right, like they made their argument. Like what follows with everybody, everyone agrees with you, and it's this awkward question to ask. Then finally, this one uh, uh, older professor says, "You imply that what matters in the field of critical practice is not truth but difference. If everybody were convinced by your arguments, then they would have to do the same as you, and then there would be no satisfaction in doing it. To win is to lose the game." Yeah, yeah. I mean, to bring it back to literature, if a if there's too much of a certain sort of perfection in, let's take novel writing, which right. I think is where you and I have both spent the most time. If there's too much perfection of a certain sort in novel writing, you feel that it's overly formally determined, right? right in the sense that Schiller talks about. If it's too overdetermined in another sense, though, right, then you feel not that it's overdetermined, but a sort of level of elicitation of spontaneity that that degenerates into its own rule, that degenerates into right. a kind of rule of chaos, which is also disappointing and enervating. This is the problem with surrealist writing. This is yeah. why so much surrealism is so unreadably bad and why surrealism uh, can be the most soul-deadening mm-hmm. kind of literature to read because surrealism is trying to recreate the act of uh, the spontaneous, rebellious gesture in the language of writing, not in the idea, but in the language. Yeah. And in doing that, it wields the language in this way that it, it, 
it, it overloads the language with the burden of, of being and it becomes itself sort of wearying, right? Yeah. So it can go too far in either direction. What you want really when you're reading is a kind of play. You want mm-hmm. to be surprised and to be forced to balance between these two impulsions. Right. And and to see the claims that each is making without without either one kind of capturing. Yeah, exactly. To right to not be ca- to be pulled by both, but not captured by either. Yeah, yeah. And look, you you obviously some writers lean more in one way or the other, and and it's not like great writing is all based on Schiller's principle of play. But there's something real here, and I think like you know, sort of surrealism is a good example yeah. of the way that even it's, it's this also, pure spontaneity... It's also not an accident that, like, when surrealism works in paintings, it yeah. tends to be by painters who've got the most meticulous formal skill in... Yeah. yeah. I think it works in painting and in visual art a lot more than it works in literature precisely because in literature the formality of language... Right. Um, and, and, you know, symbolist poetry can do this far better than surrealist poetry. Surrealist poetry makes a rule out of the the disfiguring and the chaos, which is just exhausting and sort of is constantly betraying itself. Symbolist poetry, by being sort of, by allowing the gesture to unpredictably evoke the rule in a kind of, instead of, I don't know quite how to put it, but the, I, the, I think the symbolists um, are not exhausting and, yeah. and tedious in the way, some of the symbolists are not exhausting and tedious in the way that the surrealists were. There's also, you don't want to, and this actually is not just about the writing of books, but also about the reading of them, right? And the reading of art. Like, there's a way in which I feel like a lot of people in the, uh, you know, in English classes or whatever are taught to read literature as if it's like a riddle to be mm. uncovered, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like what is the meaning of this, right? right? And, you know, the meaning of art is not a sort of set thing, right, that, that you uncover. It's an experience that you enter into and then engage people in a continuing conversation that can never end. Yeah. Right? If, if you create a work of art that can be defined to the point where, you know, uh, like in, in the David Lodge, where everybody would just agree with you, hmm. that would be a failed piece of art. Yeah, that's right. Um, the the art needs to, or the logic of the art needs to surprise itself or rebel against itself in some way. So so I think we both agree that the his notion of play, yeah. I mean, you know, regardless of whether you sort of buy into his division of human nature and all this other stuff, I think that as far as art goes, play is the perfect word and it's a, it's 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 it's, yeah. it's something very true about kind of what goes into the creation of art that works in a certain way and doesn't allow itself to be captured and allows itself to be something that somebody can really engage with productively and that actually sort of generations of people can engage with productively over time. I completely agree with that but I don't think Schiller is only enunciating play as a principle for the creation of art. He's saying that the that play, which is the principle of art, is also the principle of life. Yeah. And that this aesthetic principle is the is the principle of life. Or is um is the living form. The living yeah, form. Right. Life principle is, the sensual, is to determine. Right. Yeah, living form. Is the living form. And so it applies as much to the reader as it does to the writer. It's in both of them right. the, yes. the critical thing. Is play, which is why, which is why I don't like that. You know, read literature as a fortune, as a, as like a riddle, because it kill it. If you read literature that way, it has to kill the literature. I don't like that, and I, and I don't like the surrealist thing either. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. that um, it's not a riddle to be solved. It's a it's a barrage of sensory experience <laughs> which beats you over the head with mm-hmm. its wildness. So we we agree on that. Do yeah. we agree on his notion that this is somehow related to understanding your freedom and cultivating your, um, you know, sort of your sensibility such that, you know, we can somehow improve civilization with art? 
Yeah, I, I do because I think that um, I think that I think that the. I was really hoping you'd say no because I, I, <laughs> I, I, I I agree. It's a drag. It's a drag. <laughs> Look, I mean the good uh, the good rule inevitably degenerates into yep. the corrupt form of the good rule, mm-hmm. and the way that you preserve the good rule is by. Uh, infusing it with a, a certain degree of um, of, of anarchic experience, of revitalizing it with the experience of the world. And this is true for political systems. Yeah. It's true for societies. It's true for individual people. And that you know you tend towards one too much, and you become uh, sterile and, and authoritarian. You tend towards the other too much, and you become anarchic and uh, predatory in that way. And play as a principle, um, as a way of reconciling these poles of existence, seems to me to recognize that you can't get away from it. It's not like these can be transcended. They need, uh, they need something, a living form. Yeah. And uh, this idea of the living form, sort of hard to imagine outside of the individual, how a society might practice it, though I have a few ideas. But yeah, I think it's a pretty good general rule, you know? So what would this look like in practice as, I guess, as works of art? Naipaul comes to mind. I was just talking about Naipaul yesterday, but it's hard to think of anybody who does this better than Naipaul in a sense because you get... The world is what it is. The world is what it is. nothing. And who allow themselves to become nothing have no no place place in it. it. Yeah. Uh, I guess we both like that line. One of the greatest first lines (laughs) ever written. But Naipaul, throughout his work, writes in such a way that... I I was just talking about him yesterday, and I said to uh, my friend, a young writer named Park McDougald saying to him that I think what's so good about Naipaul is that he has a naive ear. Yeah. And what I meant by that is he doesn't assume that he knows what people think. He listens to them. Yeah. He's alive to what they're telling him. And he writes it down. And in the process of and, – and I think uh, Park was saying to me as a naive eye also. Just, you know, a good way of putting it. But in the – he is alive to the things that he's writing about. The, and in writing them, he produces rules emerge. Right. Patterns emerge. He doesn't start with a pattern that he forces the world into, nor does he deny that there yeah. are patterns. Yeah. Nor does he practice a naivety that insists that there can be no, no patterns determined. He allows for these... The, the kind of interplay of these things. And it's why when you're reading Naipaul, there is, on the one hand, this high degree of formality right. in Naipaul, right? Like Naipaul is, you couldn't call him a loose writer. No. It's not loose at all. And yet, it's not exactly stiff either, you know? And uh, it's a high bar to set Naipaul, but... They're the novels, one of the things... And, and I, some of his books I actually find almost like wearying because there's this sort of like intense sense of what could happen. Yeah, right. And it could be, you know, <laughs> they're just kind of – they're these pressurized situations where so much could happen obeying, you know, different logics. But – and I don't know. I don't know if I'm I'm describing this right, but like – you, think like you have to keep up with the world, too. Yeah. Like he creates the world so well, right? right? To the house for Mr. Biswas is just sort of an easy example. It's so full, that world, though. And uh, I, it's, not even my th- it's not even my top three books. It is, it's just the first to come to mind. But there's a lot to keep up with. Your mind can't idle into this sense that you already know everything about right. this. And, and you can't, like, sort of rest in a groove Throughout that novel, you're in a world that is surprising to you, and so you're alive to it, and where there's a lot of information coming at you. So Naipaul comes to mind as one yeah. of the best examples. And also, of this. by the way, uh, we didn't know we were going to talk about Naipaul, but I so I would have pulled up before him. But the uh, his Nobel speech where he talks about his mm. process, where it's just sort of like 
him realizing his ignorance of this world that he inhabited and then just trying to yeah. find out more about it and write. You know, it's it's, it's this very kind of natural process. But An instinctive. I mean, yeah. he calls himself an instinctive writer. It's also about plot, though, right? Yeah. Like the, this is why the, the writers who uh, look down on plot, um, you better be really good if, you, to, yeah. if you're going to look down on plot. I, I think even if you're really good, you shouldn't look down on plot. I don't think plot. you should look down on plot at all. Yeah. And, I mean, I think when people say a plot-driven novel, they mean like when the, the, the yeah, plot— They mean the kind of novel you'd actually want to read <laughs> that you yeah. should feel bad for enjoying. Yeah. But right. that's that's what it technically refers to. <laughs> yeah. The kind you might enjoy reading. <laughs> God forbid. It's like— Look, there are novels where the plot seems to sort of yoke the characters in a particular direction, right? But um, ideally, you know, (laughs) when a plot is working well, right, it's, it's... you're seeing characters evolve over time, and and you know, somebody said of, of Anthony Powell's *A Dance to the Music of Time*, which is this wonderful twelve novel series that follows characters through their whole lives, that um, they were comparing it to James Joyce's *Ulysses*. And mm. *Dance to the Music of Time* is this very like, you know, upper class British novel, very reserved, and yet it's like the sort of permutations of character and the different angles at hum- of humanity that he shows you, not through any sort of formal pyrotechnics but just through tracking characters carefully over a right. long period of time is in, in its way just as radical and transformative as something as more overtly wild uh, like uh, like Ulysses. Yeah, I often hear him compare. I haven't read Pell, but I often oh, hear you'd him like compared him. to... Uh, to, to uh, just, just beware. Proust like You'll read the, the first... Yeah. yeah, but he's a lot more fun than Proust. Mm. Uh, all respect to Proust. The, you read the first novel and you think like, okay... So this is the great book everybody's telling about. But sort of as you read more and more, you just – it hooks you. It's amazing. Anyway. We've talked a lot about novel writing. So we uh, talk about a short story? Egoists that we are. <laughs> okay. Short story. All right. Ian McEwen. Yeah. So – Wait. Let me ask you before you even get to this. Yeah. Why did you choose McEwen? I'm curious. Why did you think to pair the McEwen with the Schiller aesthetic letters? Because I've always read McEwen, and I, I like this story. I don't actually, I tend not to actually like McEwen. Mm. I've read a couple of his novels, um, and I've always kind of read him as almost like a modern naturalist. Like he's like mm. more, you know, and, and you know, he had written once that every writer, like books that every writer should read, and, and he, one of them was um, Edward Slingerland's What Science Offers the Humanities. Mm. And... He said, you know, you should read this if you're a writer. And so I read the book, actually, because I was curious. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. It, it, it um, offers some of, you know, the most current up to the time of publishing research on, you know, cognition yeah. mostly. It talks about certain things within the uh, humanities that are common within various, you know, postmodernist and poststructuralist kind of yeah. whatever wh- that, that seem at odds with what we know about science. And then, you know, has a couple other things. So I read it and... I, I thought it was a really interesting book. I enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was super useful as a writer, right? Uh, probably more so as a literary critic. So I went to a reading of McEwen's uh, that was very entertaining. One person asked him a long, complicated question about the play Doubt, um, and McEwen was like sort of really didn't know how to answer it. Uh, and he was like, and the question was, so what were you thinking when you wrote Doubt and the end of Doubt? And then finally somebody from the front of the audience turns back and goes, he didn't write that, you know? And McEwen goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm getting older. I, I thought, was that stop? I don't know. I, yeah. I, know, I don't know who yeah. wrote Doubt, but not Ian McEwen. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I asked him, I said, you, you recommended this book. And I wondered, like, sort of at a craft level, yeah. how does science inform how you create characters, you know, whatever. And he gave a kind of long, convoluted answer. He said, you know, science is carved into some of what we used to think of as the self uh, or the soul. Um, but it didn't seem, you know, I didn't seem specific. I, I, uh, I, and I guess <laughs> what I think more so than any particular lesson about how, like, you shouldn't base something off of, like, the, you know, Worf hypothesis in linguistics is um, that he kind of tends towards a determinism, I think. And I think that makes its way into a lot of his novels. I, I read somebody who, who described him, they said they didn't like his novels because they were um, a series of intricately wrapped boxes with nothing inside. Uh, like, beautiful craft, 
but like there's nothing inside. And I think what they're trying to get at is that he doesn't think the thing that we think is inside, right? A soul or whatever. He pro- I don't think he thinks it's in there necessarily. Um, no, I think he thinks there are, uh, you know, sort of animating social attitudes that maybe reflect the yeah. the forces, material forces on the the kind of uh, the human animal. I got first-hand accounts of all the events I didn't personally witness. The conditions in prison, the evacuation to Dunkirk, everything. But the effect of all this honesty was rather pitiless, you see. I couldn't any longer imagine what purpose would be served by it. By what, sorry, served by honesty? By honesty. Or reality. But I also think he's a really interesting, sophisticated writer. And he's I think definitely an interesting, sophisticated writer. This particular story, what's the title of this the story? The Use of Poetry. The Use of Poetry. It, it, so it, the reason I, I did yeah. it was because, you know, I was thinking what would be, you know, um, <laughs> what would be something that sort of was not so much interested in play, hmm. right? And I was going to say, this is not it's, it's a the story opposite, interested right. in play. Well, I, want, right. I wanted to pick a story that, that, that was, and not somebody naively right. writing something that seemed overdetermined, but somebody who's actually interested in that, right? Somebody who's interested in that and also who's not overdetermined in the sense that they are, uh, look, it's plot-driven, right? Right. So it's it's not overdetermined in the sense that he's got big speeches for his characters about what the world means and what it's made up of. It's overdetermined in the sense that its plot unfolds in a schematic that reflects a clear social thinking, I think, or a, a clear... Uh, kind of social critique and a, a clear idea of this, uh, the the force that um, these dominant social modes exert on individuals. Right. And it's moments of that are very interesting in the yeah. story. And then other moments of that seem to me to be um, uh, unsatisfying in the sense not that I didn't by the underlying social forces. Mm-hmm. You know what? Let's get into Let, this story. Okay, so, so yeah. should we describe what it is? Yeah, do it, man. So it's it's um, it's about a guy. The first line is, it surprised no one to learn that Michael Beard had been an only child, right? Uh, and then it goes on to describe his childhood. He's like this well-loved child. His mother, you know, feeds him a lot. He's like mm. a fat baby. Uh, and... Uh, there's a kind of sort of fadedness to everything, right? You can see that in the first line. Um, and there's a kind of sort of uh, kind of crude folk psychology kind of going on. So, mm-hmm. you know, the mother lived for her son and her legacy was clear. A fat man who restless, restlessly craved the attentions of beautiful women who could cook. The father... Um, had been in World War II, and so, like many men of his generation, didn't speak about his experience and relished the ordinariness of post-war life. Um, you know, later he finds out that his mother got her sort of excitement in life by cheating on her father. What's good, though, what he does well is early in the story where the mother, in a sort of very flat, expository line stops yeah. loving the father. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's a good line. You know, you... Early lay- in the marriage, yeah. for reasons that remained private, Angela withdrew her love for him. From him. Yeah. Right. So that's actually effective yeah. and powerful and is... It makes sense. You understand why. As you learn more about the father, you see that the father, having returned from two wars, has settled into a kind of idol where he only wants very small rewards, like the kind yeah. you can purchase at a car dealership. And the mother, not having had the uh, thrill of almost being killed and of yeah. being far from home and, and in fear of one's life, needs more. She needs larger yeah. Uh, thrills, larger rewards than the kind that can be purchased at a car dealership. But you don't know all that yet when you hear in that very abrupt way that she withdrew her love. And withdrew is, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's effective there and it's well put. So it goes on and he goes to Oxford and he is uh, studying science. 
uh, and uh, getting into actually the study of light ultimately. But he becomes interested in this girl. Uh, a dirty girl. A dirty girl. Well, he, sees, he hears somebody describe her as a dirty girl, right? The phrase was used approvingly as though it were a well-established category of some clinical accuracy. Her bucolic name, Maisie Farmer, in this con- connection intrigued him. And he finds out that she's an English major. She's uh, uh, studying Milton. Mm. And he decides and he he sort of makes a pass at her and fails. And then – but he thinks that there's still kind of an opening there. But she's clearly bored by the science nerds. And so he knows that she's into Milton. So he reads Milton's greatest works. He reads like four essays Mm -hmm. that – uh, somebody tells some of the important essays about yeah, yeah. Milton. Reads the Aeropagitica. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, read a, and then read a biography. Four essays that had been told were uh, pivotal. The reading took him one long read, re- week. So he spends a week just learning, you know, uh, a lot about Milton. And then he runs into her again and sort of uh, when she tells him that she's writing about Milton uh, – uh, and, and the, the description of their of the courtship is is great. Actually. It is great. And not for nothing, clearly he ripped this off from Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day <laughs> where, you know, he learns. I forget that actress's name, but he learns. That is such a good movie. It's an amazing movie, and, yeah. Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell. Oh, Adam, did, well by done. By the way, did you know that Tori Amos was considered for that part? I did not know that. But they oh. have similar hair, right? That kind of uh, fairy tale <laughs> curly hair. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, and then he's he's able to quote from Milton. Um, there's <laughs> there's a there's a moment. Uh, then he spoke of how do you pronounce it? Aeropagitica, yeah. and its relevance to modern you. modern politics. At this, she stopped on the path and asked significantly what a scientist was doing, knowing so much about Milton. And he thought he'd been rumbled. He pretended to be just a little insulted. All knowledge interested him. He said. The demarcations between subjects were mere conveniences or historical accidents. Um, so he kind of successfully, you know, is able to hold his own in a conversation mm-hmm. with somebody who's studying Milton. And and that is the beginning of their relationship um, and kind of the point at which the first of his marriages began. And mm-hmm. just sort of throw away line, the first of his marriages. But it's, you know, again, one of this these nice little, you know, very careful – uh, ways that, that uh, McEwen sets up what's to come. And then he has this uh, paragraph where he describes how going after her this way totally changed his relationship to the humanities and basically how he thinks it's one big con, right? Right. Because because if you can learn everything you need to know about Milton in the course of seducing a woman, then how much is there really to know about Milton? Right. That it, it was all a, a monstrous bluff. The reading was a slog, but he encountered nothing that could be remotely construed as an intellectual challenge. Nothing on the scale of difficulty he encountered daily in his course. That very week of the Randolph dinner, he had studied the Ricci scalar and finally understood its use in general relativity. At least he thought he could grasp these extraordinary equations. The theory was no longer an abstraction. It was sensual. He could feel the way the seamless fabric of space-time might be warped by matter and how this fabric influenced the movement of objects, how gravity was conjured by its curvature. He could spend half an hour staring at the handful of terms and subscripts of the crux of the field equations and understand why Einstein himself had spoken of its incomparable beauty and why Max Born had said it was the greatest feat of human thinking about nature. Uh, And he, you know, he knows that the humanities people and could never get there in a week, right? But he right. had done this with Milton and so he's free, right? He, he he had done enough to get her to go out with him. Right. He assumes that that means He that knows he what knows there is to know about Milton. Yeah. As much as she knows even. Right. Right? But of course he doesn't know anywhere near as much as she knows. He only knows enough to right. have carried on a conversation with yeah. her. So, and then, all right, so then it goes on. They, they get married. They're sort of countercultural. Then she... You know, they're they, they're living in this house with these miserable theology students with two children. Twins, uh, right? Twins, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> who convince him that he's never going to become a father because they look so miserable. Um, they're lame imitations of the counterculture, though. Yeah. Right? She makes him get a shaggy haircut. And right. There's a good line that they're both too short to pull it off, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. Um, and then she gets in with this kind of like uh, actually – 
sort of feminist stuff that he he describes really contemptuously. He, McEwen, mm. uh, describes really contemptuously, where she has clearly been reading, well, actually, Andrea Dworkin types. Mm. Um, and, you know, she is angry at him. Uh, you know, they go through this sort of difficult period. Then she announces that he, she's she's leaving him, and he's so grateful. He admits, like, a sigh mm. uh, of relief. Um, and then, you know, they, they part, and it's just wonderful. He feels free. He's going to be able to work whenever he wants. He's going to be able to see other women. Uh, and then... You know, was it, uh, it ends, was ever a marriage dissolved so painlessly? Um, and they, you know, talks about how easy it was. And then he says, perhaps it was the ease of their parting in the old rec- rectory that made him so incautious about marrying again and again. That's in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the problem for me is that the, uh, do we, look, what's the, Maisie, Maisie, Maisie Farmer, is that Maisie Farmer appears to be a fairly. She's, she's a stock character. She never holds but her she's own. she's not from the beginning. Yeah. Actually, in the beginning, she's interesting. She's interesting. And she becomes uninteresting at precisely the moment that she undergoes this unheralded, unaccounted for conversion to strident feminism that is, to me, not just deterministic, it's unconvincing. It's not even convincing in a paint by numbers way. It's, and the problem is not that it's too abrupt. The problem is that it's too complete yeah. and too self-assured right. and that there's every reason to think that uh, she's been completely possessed by, you know, there's not the unaccountable note in it, right? The mother in the beginning of the story yeah. withdraws her love for reasons we don't know. Maisie, we can, we could write a thousand pages of reasons why she has done this because those thousand pages are already written in a thousand testimonies about the radical politics of the time and about the problems with patriarchy and the ways in which, uh, you know, uh, uh, women were, were taken by these politics. This is all, it's all too well rehearsed. She becomes a caricature of a shrill feminist. Yeah. And he becomes less interesting as a Mm -hmm. consequence. Um, they both become less interesting. I do like the them trapped in the apartment with the married yeah. couple with the twins. You know that that works well. But, <laughs> so the the ending of the story was just um, yeah, the the the, the predictable. Yeah, the bit the bit for me that I thought was interesting was was the courtship and then the relationship to literature, right? And him suspecting it's all a monstrous bluff. Yeah. Um, you have it open in front of you. I do. There's a good line. He says it to uh, the professor. By the oh, way, yeah. So this yeah. this is this is the other thing is that in the story he doesn't offer. Even though McEwen is a fiction writer, he doesn't offer a very good defense, right? Like we can provide a defense, right? Or say that well, of course she knows a lot more about Milton than he does, but he never shows that Maisie knows more about Milton than he does, right? I don't have any problem with that. But, uh, but I'm just saying, like yeah. it's not. I don't. I, as I said, I like the story, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the best defense that he gives a character to yeah. say is this. Well, what you were gonna this is this yeah, is the bit is, that you were uh, um, gonna mention, right? Many years later, Beard. So Beard is our protagonist, it's yeah. Michael Beard. Yeah. Right? Many years later, Beard told this story in his conclusions to an English professor in Hong Kong, who said, "But Michael, you've missed the point." If you had seduced 90 girls with 90 poets, one a week in a course of three academic years, and remembered them all at the end, the poets I mean, and synthesized your reading into some kind of aesthetic overview, then you would have earned yourself a degree in English literature. But don't pretend that it's easy. Yeah, that's the the closest you get to a defense. Um, But my, you know, I I thought... And that's not a defense. Because you don't need a defense, though. but just like ju- just getting the received wisdom—that's mm. not what it's about, right? In the same way that science, the purpose of, of him learning all this science is not so he can enjoy the sensuous nature of the equation. So that is important, right? It's the living form. It's it's so that he can continue the practice, right, and provide something new, right. That is building on what has come before. Well, that's the teleological function right. of it. But the the sensuousness is what keeps him doing it. Right. It's the living form. Yeah. And for him, literature 
is not. He won't allow it or or is not open to its living form. Well, because because Milton is these texts and the and the four most important essays written about them, right? Milton is the path to this woman. Right. It's 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 purely instrumental. Yeah, it's right? purely instrumental. Um and it's not, you know, you I'm gonna read I'm gonna writer. read Milton yeah. and have a unique and new and highly specific to me because I am, you know. But the, the, but look, it's it's not even. But why would it be that, right? Because it starts off with him reading Milton to get yeah, the woman, right? So it's not that he's not reading Milton to enrich himself, but he's not even reading Milton to understand her, right? Which is sensible enough, you know, like that in the course of quickly trying to work up some rap to go seduce someone you're attracted to, you. You're going to be <laughs> instrumental. I mean, I, I, I can hardly yeah. judge the guy too harshly for that. But you could see a different writer doing this and making it so that the Michael Beard character in the course of reading the Milton is changed, by, the Milton. Is changed by it, right? doesn't develop a contempt, but there's some sort of epiphanic moment where one line captures him, distills something about the experience of the world. That doesn't happen here. And it's not that that needs to happen, but because that doesn't happen, and because by the end of the story, you've achieved what was clear in the first line of mm-hmm. the story, and because what you've achieved by the end of the story doesn't feel inescapable in the sense of, you know, a Greek fadedness feels right. inescapable, it only feels predictable. Yeah. There's something about it to me that is unsatisfying. That's, that's my complaint here. Throughout the story at various points... Um, there are some wonderful details. The first half of it, I thought, was uh, quite good. But the way it closes out, it just, uh, you know, it, it just felt too... too Reductive? Re- routine, also too yeah. reductive, too, too routine. No, no living form in it, you know? I, I, there are moments of... like. I can see the end. I'm saying has yeah, no end. living form. I think the, the 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 character himself and him doing this, even him not being affected by the Milton, and it's actually hard to see somebody wait, 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 let me, reading like yeah. spending that much time with Milton and not and and being able to actually activate that knowledge mm. in a way with somebody who loves Milton mm. and not being changed at all. But it, that being said, like that guy and that sort of you know his relationship towards literature as a con, right? Mm. I think that's I think that's really interesting. I agree. And that's that's what I'm saying. I I liked that nobody defends literature, you know. Right. That you don't the point is not to argue about literature. Yeah. I, I think we know where McEwen stands right. in that divide. The point is that that's who this guy is. Yeah. And it, it's actually being a bit unfair to McEwen to say that there's no living form at the end. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. But he thinks there is. Yeah. Because at the end of the story, when she leaves him, and she gives him this very predictable, right. sort of strident political speech. I think that's the weakest bit of the... But but what ha- his response to it yeah. is to heave up. Yeah. And the story leads you to think that he's going to sob. Right. That he's going to cry. And then at the moment after he heaves, it, you know, the... the oh, I never thought he was going to cry. You didn't think that that was a sadness? You thought that that was no, unrelieved joy? I never thought he was going to cry. Well, read that line. Hold on. Hold on. That's that's clearly, maybe not sob, but that he had been, that there was something... Uh, I'll, I'll read it. The whole thing is good, actually. Okay, so she gives this long you know, ex- explanation of why she's leaving him that is kind of boilerplate. And then uh, McEwen writes, At this point... Beard felt himself overtaken by a powerful and unfamiliar emotion that tightened his throat and forced from his chest a sob that he was powerless to contain. It was a sound that surely all the Gibsons heard through the wall. It could easily have been confused with a shout. What he experienced was a compound of joy and relief, followed by a floating, expansive sensation of lightness, as if he were about to drift free of the sheets and bump against the ceiling. Suddenly, it was all before him, the prospect of freedom. Yeah, I think that that is meant to uh, elicit a surprise in that your first reaction to the sob is that he has been caught off guard by her leaving him. Um, that was my take. 
I, I think just because of all the things that had come before, where he describes not just her political conversion, but his boredom by it. There's a bit where they talk about being in counseling, and he's just like spending most of the time thinking about like equations. Right. Right. That I didn't. I didn't see him. Uh, but e- either way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I th- I thought it was a. I thought I think I think it's a really interesting short story. I agree with you about the end, and I think. Yeah. Um. You know, I think there, there, you know, there are issues where you what you would want would be for a character to break free of this constraint, right? In some or notion towards it in some way beyond the predictable. But um, well, we spend enough time with him that um, it wasn't. It, she disappointed me at the end. She seemed more interesting, right? And then she became so flat and one note at the end. It just felt like uh, either. He had sold out on it, or he was trying to suggest that she had been flattened by the uh, the strident, you know, ideological forces of the time. Either way, what can I tell you? The, I, I liked the first two yeah. thirds better. Than I, but the last. I think I think the whole bit is is sort of he's always giving you the the kind of fatedness of what's to come. So it would have to have a kind of yeah. But fates, it's not fate because it's it's determinism. Are, it's different. Yeah, it's small right. determinism. It's petty determinism. Yeah. You know, it's these are not the fates. These are not the gods of the fates. Autonomous forces that that stand outside uh, uh, us individuals up on the mountaintop. But yeah. hey, see if this catches you by surprise. We're done. That's it. Podcast, a manifesto. Signing off. Am I to squeeze my body into stays and straight lace my will in the trammels of law? What might have risen to an eagle's flight has been reduced to a snail's pace by law. Never yet has law formed a great man. Tis liberty that breeds giants and heroes. I reject your ending, Jake. And on hearing that, Siegel sobbed. He could be heard through the walls. People thought he was upset, but really, it was an exaltation. <laughs> <laughs>